This contribution compiles interviews from our archive that deal with historical issues. The goal is to provide context and background to the political issues facing humanity today. Professor Kasnick on the Roots of American Exceptionalism, published March 21, 2019. American exceptionalism is the deeply, deeply held belief in the United States that the United States is not only different from all other countries, but the United States is better than all other countries, that all other countries are motivated by greed, by territorial acquisition, by geopolitics, but the United States is different. The United States is motivated to want to do good in the world. The United States wants to spread freedom and democracy. The U.S. is benevolent. It's altruistic. It only wants to improve the world. And so that makes the United States different from all other countries. It makes the United States better than all other countries. And it gives the United States rights and prerogatives that no other country deserves. That's the way Americans think. This idea of American exceptionalism is deeply ingrained in American thinking. And even before it was called American exceptionalism, it goes back to the colonial roots of America. When John Winthrop came here from England uh, aboard the Arbella, before the settlers disembarked in order to create Massachusetts Bay Colony, in 1630, John Winthrop gives his famous sermon aboard the Arbella, and he says, we shall be as a city upon the hill. The eyes of the world will be upon us. We will be God's messengers. If we fail, if we fall to pursue our carnal desires, then we'll be ashamed to the word of God. But if we succeed in what we're trying to do here, Then we're going to lift up God's forces. They will triumph over the Antichrist and they will set the standard for the entire world. That kind of uh, both narcissistic approach, but also this idea, this megalomaniacal approach that the United States represents something different, better, and that we're going to set the standard for the rest of mankind and pull up the other more lowly people to our higher esteemed plane. That's the beginning of the, of the concept. It evolves over the years, uh, but it's, it's something uniquely American. We see it in the 1890s when the United States is embarking upon its empire. This idea of, of the American empire as uplifting the rest of mankind. So we've got a responsibility throughout Latin America where we intervene over and over again. We have a responsibility in the Philippines when we decide, because up to that point, the belief was we had to choose. We could either be a republic and stand for our, our positive values, or we could become an empire. And that's actually the core of the 1900 election. William Jennings Bryan said, we have to stay a republic. We can't be an empire. McKinley said, we must become an empire. But you look at some of the wording. You give me a chance to read something uh, in when we were deciding what to do with the Philippines. We have uh, Senator Alfred Beveridge of Indiana and is uh, on talking about U.S. imperial policy. He was the only one to actually only senator 
or congressman to actually go to the Philippines. Somebody awaited his word when he got back. And he says, the Philippines are ours forever. This island empire is the last land left to, in all the oceans. Our largest trade henceforth must be with Asia. The Pacific is our ocean. More and more Europe will manufacture the, mo the most it needs, secure from its colonies, the most it consumes. Where shall we turn for consumers of our surplus? Geography answers the question. China is our natural customer. The Philippines give us a base at the door of all, that, all the East. Most future wars will be conflicts for commerce. The power that rules the Pacific, therefore, is the power that rules the world. And with the Philippines, that power is and will forever be the American Republic. God has marked the American people as his chosen nation to finally lead in the regeneration of the world. This is the divine mission of America, and it holds for us all the profit, all the glory, all the happiness possible to man. We are trustees of the world's progress, guardians of its righteous peace. The judgment of the master is upon us. Ye have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. That's, the, that's American exceptionalism. God's chosen people. 58% of Americans, according to a recent survey, said that they believe that God has chosen the United States for a special mission. And that mission is to uplift the rest of humanity, 58%. And this idea, so you go back to Woodrow Wilson at Versailles. Uh, Woodrow Wilson says, now the world will see the United States as the savior of the world. Savior of the world. Woodrow Wilson. The idea of American exceptionalism really takes off during the Cold War, when you've got the sociologists and uh, others, other uh, academics trying to say, what's different about the United States? And at that point, they were saying, well, we can look at the fact that we don't have a feudal past. That makes the United States different. We can look at our constitution. We can look at our frontier. We can look at our the fact that unlike the Europeans, we don't have socialism. The big debate was why no socialism in the United States? Europeans have big socialists, labor, communist parties. The U.S. is different again. But they were looking for what was different. That later becomes a, a different kind of trope. This idea that not only is the United States different, but the United States is better. And that really emerges really with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Uh, the United States had suffered a lot of blows in the 60s and 70s. The United States had been uh, defeated in Vietnam by a peasant nation after coming to a stalemate in Korea. The United States was not so mighty and powerful as it wanted to believe it was. We had, had such racial strife in the 1960s and 1970s, a lot of social discord. And so Ronald Reagan is going to try to unite the United States around this glowing vision of America, that America is again the city upon a hill, God's nation, superior in every way. And that, that idea really takes hold during the 1980s again, and it becomes a rallying cry, especially for Republicans. Democrats in those days were critics of US foreign policy and the US role in the world. Republicans embraced that kind of vision and that superior role for the United States. By the, 18, by the 1990s and the Clinton era, 
You've got Secretary of State Madeleine Albright saying if we use force, it's because we're America. We're the indispensable nation. We stand taller and see further into the future than other nations. We have a special right to do this. After 9-11, it became America's national birthright under George W. Bush. This idea of great Americanism and that we can now, we can, the neocon vision that we can overturn governments at will and try to remake the world, remake the face of the Middle East. We're going to start with Afghanistan, and then we're going to do Iraq, and then we're going to overthrow Syria, then we're going to overthrow Lebanon. We had a list. They came up with lists of eight or more countries that the United States was obliged to overthrow and recreate in America's image. And we see this again with Barack Obama. Obama's smarter. He's not smarter than a Reagan or a Bush or a Trump, much more sophisticated thinker. So he understood some of the irony involved in this. Grew up in Hawaii, grew up, you know, in Indonesia, countries that had seen the, the consequences of American militarism, uh, bloodbaths in Indonesia and the conquest of the planters in Hawaii. And he also was mixed race with a father from Kenya. And, and you know, there's a lot of questionable things about his family background, but Obama had a more nuanced view. And at some points he said, uh, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks in Greek exceptionalism. And he got attacked for that. And he got attacked by Mike Huckabee, among others. He said, if you don't believe in American exceptionalism, you're undercutting the essence, the heart of America. So Obama retrenched. And he said, I believe in American exceptionalism. The Washington Post had an article citing the fact that Obama cites American exceptionalism more than any other president ever did. And it was true. I, I mean, if you would indulge me to look at, read something else. Uh, when Obama welcomed the troops when they came home from uh, Iraq, he, he welcomed the troops at Fort Bragg. And he says there, says a lot of crazy stuff. He says, we're leaving behind a sovereign, stable, and self-reliant Iraq with a representative government that was elected by its people, sure. Uh, and he says, the most important lesson was about our national character, that there's nothing we Americans can't do when we stick together. And that's why the U.S. military is the most respected institution in our land. Sadly, that might be true. Uh, and he says, uh, that it's our willingness to sacrifice so much for people that you had never met. Uh, he says it was part of what makes us special as Americans. Unlike the old empires, we don't make these sacrifices for territory or for resources. We do it because it's right. There could be no further expression of America's support for self-determination than our leaving Iraq to its people. It says America has made the world America stronger and the world more secure. But this idea that even a sophisticated, intelligent person like Obama, who knows better, would say that what makes us different is that we want to, you know, we just want to make things better. We go to Iraq. You know, there, there was the sign that people used to have during the Iraq war, the sticker. Uh, what is our oil doing under their sand? 
right? Or, or when Greenspan says in, in his book that, of course, we went to Iraq for oil, but Obama can't admit that. We go there to help the people. We make it a better country. And we don't want territory. We don't want wealth. We just want them to be happier and to have more freedom and democracy. That nonsense runs through. Uh, Kissinger says that that only America is inspired by this greater vision. Uh, so this idea runs, you know, as, as we say in untold history, it's the air we breathe in America. It's the water we drink. It, it's the narcotic that that allows us to think these crazy things about ourselves that the rest of the world, you know, I point to Samuel Huntington when Huntington says, uh, West won the world not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion, but the sub by the superior application of organized violence. Westerners often forget that fact. Non-Westerners never do. I disagree with Huntington about most, almost everything, but about that, he was right. And, and so there's this deep, very dangerous blindness that runs through America. And I see the signs of it everywhere. I see it when I look at, for example, you turn on the TV and you've got four talking heads saying that the, so, the Russian interference in the American election is an act of war. How dare they interfere in American democracy? They're attacking our democracy, is what American broadcasters say. None of them have even the slightest sense of how ironic this is, how blind this is, that the United States, which has special forces in 142 countries this year, the United States was a bombing nine countries, the United States, which has surveillance all over the entire world, the United States, which intervenes in elections all over the world, not just in Russia, but everywhere, has been doing so since the creation of the CIA in 1947. Uh, how can they not have some sense of perspective and proportion in understanding this and thinking that when something body does it to us, it's unconscionable. But when you do it to everybody else, it's our birthright. And that's the kind of thinking that is so dangerous among American foreign policy elites. And, uh, and it's what, what Oliver and I are trying to combat, trying to hold the mirror up to America and say, look at yourself, you know, get a, get a view of what the United States really is, what our history has been. Take it back to the founding. There were a lot of great things about the United States, uh, but there also was the genocide of the Native Americans. The fact that our country was born in slavery, that we've been a slave nation more than we've been a, a non-slave nation, that the United States has been, the American empire has been extensive throughout the world in a way that no other empire has ever been, and that blinds us to the kind of self-consciousness that will allow us to step outside of this. What are the people who had that understanding? better than anybody, uh, as you know, Zane, is uh, Henry Wallace. When Wallace became vice president in 1941, uh, he tried to set an example. He tried to get, present a vision of a kinder America. And in 1941, Henry Luce declared 
Henry Luce is the founder of the Time Life Empire, the publishing magnate. He said that the 20th century must be the American century. The United States will dominate the world. Henry Wallace, as vice president, countered that. In his famous speech, The Century of the Common Man, which defined him, he says, the 20th century should not be the American century. It should be the century of the common man. Henry Wallace calls for a worldwide people's revolution. In the tradition of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Latin American revolutions, and the Russian Revolution. And he said, we've got to bring the light to people everywhere. He said, we've got to extend the fruits of science and technology to people all over the world. He says, we've got to end colonialism, end economic exploitation, end imperialism, end monopolies and cartels. We've got to uplift people around the world. And that's that would be a positive role for the United States. And he says we should do this hand in hand with the Soviet Union. He was opposed to the nuclear arms race, the dropping the atomic bomb, the Cold War. He fought against that. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, you know, it's a different vision. There are people throughout American history who've had a different vision of the role the United States should play. Unfortunately, they've been silenced too often. Uh, Henry Wallace should have become president in 1945, when, or because he should have been back on the ticket as vice president for a second term. When Democratic voters were asked on the eve of the convention in 1944, who they wanted back on the, who they wanted on the ticket as vice president, 65% said they wanted Henry Wallace. 2% said they wanted Harry Truman. It's a, it's a travesty that Truman became president, vice president, and then president when Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945. Had it been Wallace, then history would have been so different. And But there's that possibility. We've had that possibility time and time again. But you look at how this plays out now. For example, we could talk more about Wallace because I love talking about Wallace. But uh, you, you look at now the United States versus North Korea or the United States versus Iran. Why does the or Israel or anybody, why does the United States have the right to have nuclear weapons and then tell other people they don't have the right? The United States is the only country to have used nuclear weapons in warfare bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The United States doesn't use nuclear weapons, hasn't used nuclear weapons only twice. The United States has used nuclear weapons repeatedly in the same sense that a robber holding a gun to someone's head uses that gun without pulling the trigger. This has been the essence of American foreign policy. Every time an American leader, and everybody has, from Truman up through Trump, says that all options are on the table, what they're saying is uh, that uh, nuclear weapons are a threat, are an option. They all say that. Uh, the Republican convention, the opening line in the Republican Party platform in 2016 was, we the Republicans affirm our belief in American exceptionalism. Trump actually questioned that. You know, Trump is a funny sword in that way. Um, and 
Trump believes in Trumpian exceptionalism. Trump doesn't even extend it to the rest of the country. He says that he's the savior and he's what the world needs. It's not even the United States. So uh, so Trump is, is perhaps an outlier in that regard. But he acts as if the United States has the right to throw its weight around uh, and, and do whatever it wants to do. Now follows Professor Kasnick on World War I, Propaganda and War Profiteering, published in April 19th, 2019. Welcome to Know Your Stuff, a program aimed at providing historical context and educating on societal issues. My name is Zan Raza. Today we are joined by Peter Kasdek, Professor of History and the Director of Nuclear Studies Institute at the American University. He's also the author of the book called The Untold History of the United States, which he wrote together with Hollywood film director and producer Oliver Stone. Peter Kuznick, glad to have you on again. Glad to be with you. Let us be begin by examining the first chapter of your book called World War I, Wilson versus Lenin. Without getting into the geopolitics at first, can you talk about A, the general sediment in the United States before the U.S. entered into World War I, and B, Can you also define and examine the role of the Committee on Public Information, CPI, which is also known as the Creel Commission, that you argue in your book played an influential role in shaping public opinion for the government to enter into war? Uh, yeah, and, and the two questions really go together, because the attitude in the United States was people did not want to get involved in World War I. We saw this slaughter going on in Europe. There was nothing that was appealing. You saw trench warfare in which young men were being mowed down by machine guns as they fought over a few feet each direction. We saw poison gas being used in large amounts and the effects on people were just horrific. Uh, so the attitude in the United States, even before the war, wasn't just the United States, globally, The assumption was that civilization had advanced to the point when people would never go to war against each other. This was the time when you had the great second international. So you had the uh, big European labor parties and socialist parties who were part of this. And what they said was they're not going to go to war for their capitalist masters. If there's a, if the capitalists declare war, then rather than killing workers, in other countries, they're going to go on a general strike against their governments. Some countries, uh, the leaders said that we're going to make turn this into a communist or a socialist revolution and overthrow the capitalists entirely. We saw that with Rosa Luxemburg in Germany. We saw that with Lenin and Trotsky in Russia. So there was a sentiment that we would never go into this war. And then It was a tragedy, uh, beginning with the SPD in Germany uh, and then the French socialists. They all started to support vote for war credits and support the war effort. The attitude in Germany is we have to protect our country against the Russian hordes, these barbaric Russians. Uh, and so then country after country lined up for the war and they sent their boys off to slaughter each other for greed and glory and God and prophets and the motherland. It was so demoralizing for on a planetary basis. 
that people would choose to be killing other working men, just like yeah. themselves, in the name of nationalism, in the name of capitalism, in the name of greed. Uh, and so the attitudes of the United States watch this. And when the Europeans go to war in 1914, the United States stays out. And the United States doesn't enter the war until April of 1917. So by that point, uh, there was a strong anti-war sentiment in the United States. Wilson got elected, Woodrow Wilson got re-elected in 1916 on the basis that he kept the United States out of the war. And he, that was his campaign slogan. But deep down, he knew that he wanted the U.S. to get involved in the war. And so they called when, they, when the United States declared war on, uh, I think it was April 2nd, 1917, the, uh, they called for a million volunteers. They got 73,000 after six weeks. So people were not lining up. They were not ready to go and fight in that, that, under those horrific conditions. Uh, but eventually they drafted and two million Americans eventually went off to war. Uh, it was, again, in some ways, the worst war ever. Uh, World War II had more casualties. World War II had its own atrocities, the Holocaust, the atomic bombs. So we could say that World War II was in some ways the most horrific war ever. But we could also say that about World War I because it demoralized civilization. We thought we were beyond solving problems with war. But what was going on? We had uh, the, the Europeans were fighting over the colonies. There was a tremendous increase in colonization of the planet in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And Germany was a newcomer. And Germany's economy was developing very rapidly. And they were challenging the Brits in steel production and coal and all manufacturing. British were not investing in new industry and technology. The Brits were off in Africa and other places with a stagnant economy and trying to expand by colonization and exploiting and stealing the, the uh, resources and labor from those countries. One of the startling facts to me was that in 1914, only 1% of young British men were graduating high school. I looked it up in the United States at the same time, 9% were graduating high school. British economy was stagnant, British society was stagnant, rigid class barriers, not a lot of social mobility. And so, uh, so but then you've got these new up and coming countries like Germany and Japan, and they wanted a piece of the action. The world was not able to find a way to integrate them and to give them their, what they considered a fair cut of colonies or profits or investments and resources. And so the, really World War I is a war to redivide the colonies and redistribute the colonies and the wealth of the colonies. It's not a war for higher ideals. It's not a war for greater purposes. That's why we needed the Creel Committee, the Committee for Public Information, because we needed to sell this war to the American people. World War I is the first large scale example of 
government-run propaganda. And propaganda was lies. And so the Creel Committee started to do this massive propaganda campaign to try to convince the American people to support the war. The idea was that the British and the French treated their colonies nobly and, uh, and, and were very, very generous to their colonies, but the British and the Austro-Hungarians were brutal to their colonies. They were bloodthirsty and look at the terrible things they did, bayoneting babies and all kinds of horrible things. So it's a massive propaganda effort. There were 75,000 uh, volunteers. They were called four-minute men. And they would go around, make speeches on uh, shopping centers, on streetcars, in churches, in the schools, every place the public gathered, movie lines. And they would make speeches talking about the virtues of the allied cause and the horrors of the enemy's cause. And they try to basically convince the American people that this was a noble effort. The American people were not buying it. And so the government took even more extreme measures that we can talk about. Yeah, let's talk about that. Can you uh, continue uh, your discussion on the Creel Commission? Well, the Creel Committee uh, it did a number of things. Uh, it was headed by George Creel, who was a newspaper man from Denver, Colorado. And in addition to the four Minutemen and their propaganda, the Creel Committee put out reports. And one of the reports, the next to last report they issued, was about the uh, German Bolshevik conspiracy. And it, they republished documents that had been long known as fraud, fraudulent, as forgeries in Europe. Uh, but they published them as if they were true. And the idea was that Lenin and Trotsky were, purged, were paid German agents on the German payroll. And then they went back in the interest of Germany to uh, spread this revolution and get Russia out of the war. Well, Russia does leave the war after, and they, they signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was a terrible treaty for Russia, for the Soviet Union at that point. But Lenin and Trotsky were so desperate to get their country out of the war that they were willing to take the hit that that treaty imposed on them. Uh, the Russian people were going to war without uniforms, without boots, without rifles. But they were suffering. You know, we're going to talk probably about poison gas, but it was the Russians who suffered the most from the poison gas that was used. It was the Russians who suffered the most casualties. The Russians have suffered the most deaths uh, and they weren't in a position to protect themselves. So the Tsar had allowed the, this uh, F war effort to continue. And then after the Menshevik revolution, they still stayed in the war effort. So the Western countries, the allies were very happy to have Russia there, the Russian troops as cannon fodder, the Russians holding off the uh, Germans, at least in part of that war effort. Uh, so when Lenin and Trotsky pulled the Soviet Union, pulled Russia out of the war, the West went apoplectic. And one of the things that we'll probably talk about is the Western intervention into the Soviet Union to try to stop the Soviet, the Russian Revolution. Uh, it was one of the turning points in history.
So how was the state of dissent uh, during that time in the U.S. particularly? Were there movements, campaigns or influential figures um, that tried to stop the U.S. Uh, war once U.S. entered into it? And how did the, if at all, did the government intervene and, uh, and try to clamp down on the dissent? There was strong dissent in the United States. In the election of 1912, the Socialist Party won numerous uh, mayor, mayoral elections, city council elections. People were elected to Congress from the Socialist Party during this period. So you had the Socialists. You also had the, the strong labor movement, the IWW, the uh, International Workers of the World, uh, was very powerful during this time. And they were both anti-war. And, and were organizing across the country. Uh, there, there were this very strong anti-war movement. In fact, in 1915, the most popular American song was the song, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. Teddy Roosevelt hated that song. He said, that song makes as much sense as a song titled, I Didn't Raise My Girl to Be a Mother. Uh, Roosevelt always was waving the bloody flag and wanting to get into the wars. In fact, when, when World War I broke out, Roosevelt asked Wilson for permission to raise a volunteer battalion and take them over to Russia. In fact, Roosevelt had four sons, all of whom volunteered for the war effort, two of whom were wounded and gassed, and Roosevelt's youngest son, 20-year-old Quentin, uh, was actually killed when his plane was shot down. Teddy Roosevelt never recovered from that. He died six months later. He was a broken man. And he had some realization how terrible this was. In the same sense that Rudyard Kipling, you know, the proponent of, of British empire, white man's duty, uh, white man's obligation to go and, and civilize the heathens, white man's burden, as he called it. Uh, uh, he also encouraged his young son to volunteer for the war. And his son's first day in combat, he was killed. Uh, afterwards, uh, Kipling wrote his epitaph for the war. And he wrote there, if any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. So, so, you had, so there was strong anti-war sentiment and the government repressed it. It was repressed, they passed legislation. He, as, Espionage Act of 1917, the Sedition Act of 1918, the amended Espionage Act, which banned basically anti-war protests. Anybody who spoke out against the war could be jailed. Anybody who opposed the war bonds could be jailed. Anybody who spoke out against the draft could be jailed. And people were by the hundreds, by the thousands. And in fact, not only that, but they also cracked down on freedom of speech throughout society. The campuses, the campuses went silent. The campuses, they, they banned, as Nicholas Murray Butler, the president of Columbia said, well, freedom of speech and academic freedom might have been a luxury we had before the war. But now if anybody on our campus speaks out against the war, he's gonna be fired or thrown out of school. And so uh, very quickly, Two leading Columbia faculty members, James McKean Cattell, 
one of the country's leading psychologists, and Henry, De Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Dana, the grandson of the poet, were both thrown out of the fire from the Columbia faculty. There was huge protests and opposition. Charles Beard resigned in protest, America's leading historian resigned in protest. He was supporting the war effort, but he said this kind of crackdown on freedom of speech cannot be tolerated. And others supported him and, and resigned in protest. So this was, you had a, a period here when civil liberties were out the window, freedom of speech out the window, academic freedom out the window, and people were being thrown in jail. Uh, among them was Eugene Debs, the leader of the Socialist Party. He went to Canton, Ohio, to the prison there where three socialists were in jail for speaking out against the war. He made a, a famous anti-war speech before a huge crowd there, and then they brought charges against him. They convicted him for a 10-year sentence for his opposition to the war and speaking out against the war. And he said, he said, let the capitalists furnish their own corpses and there'll never be another war. Let them send their own sons off to fight and their fellow capitalists off to fight. There'll never be another war. But he says, instead, what do they do? They send the sons of workers off to kill the sons of other workers in other countries. And he wasn't going to remain silent in the face of that. I wish we had that kind of protest going on now. Right. How long has the United States been involved in the war in Afghanistan? Uh, 17, 18 years already. Is there a strong protest on the campuses? I haven't seen it. My university, American University, keeps getting named by the Princeton Review, the most politically active campus in America. And what I tell my students is that the most politically active campus in 2019 is less active than the least politically active campus was in the late 1960s. Uh, it's, I mean, we, there's just, I mean, there's a lot of concern about environmental issues, and that's great, gender equality, uh, racial issues, but not about war and peace issues. And that to me is, is appalling right now. You know, I have to comment on that, that I find it appalling as well because the military industrial complex, the budget is is staggering. I think it's somewhere between 1.4 to $2 trillion a year. And yet there's so little focus on that because it could actually, if we take that money out and put it in social or climate things, would change so much. But getting back uh, to World War One. Uh, I want to take a step back and talk about uh, the backdrop. Uh, things that are not mentioned in historical literature, at least here in Germany, about World War I, is the commercial interest as well as the interest of war profiteers that, uh, and what role they played during World War I. Could you provide your assessment on this? Right, just throw out some numbers. The U.S. banks had loaned two and a half billion dollars to the allies and only 27 million to the central powers. Uh, the U.S. was selling by 1917 three billion dollars to uh, Britain and France and selling less than a million dollars to Germany and Austria-Hungary. So it was clear that there was a financial motivation for getting involved in this war. I, you know, when, and Wilson saw it more as a diplomatic issue. What Wilson said to his critics was that 
if the United States remains neutral, we're going to have no influence in shaping the post-war world. He says, all I'll be able to do is yell through a crack in the door. But if we get involved in the war, then we'll be at the table and I can shape the post-war world according to my vision. And Wilson's vision was in some ways a relatively noble one, had he actually lived up to any of that. But it wasn't going to happen. Uh, when the Soviets took over, when the Russians took over, the Bolsheviks took over, one of the first things they do, did is they went into the foreign ministry and exposed all the secret treaties that were already into place. The main one, the Sykes-Picot Treaty between British, the French, and the Russians, talked about how they're going to divide up the colonies. They're going to divide up the Ottoman Empire, divide up the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire. Uh, and, and this was what they actually ended up doing at Versailles. So all of, tr of Wilson's highfalutin uh, rhetoric about making the world safe for democracy, the war to end all wars, we're going to end colonialism, bullshit, none of that happened. In fact, the United States actually even took over the uh, trusteeship for Armenia. They, they, uh, Lloyd George and Clemenceau joked. They said, well, we'll call Wilson the Grand Turk after the, after the war. Uh, so the United States went along with all of that. Uh, Wilson did not fight for the 14 points. Germany surrendered based on the 14 points. Germany thought that this would be a non-punitive treaty, that there would be the things that they called for, freedom of the seas, free trade, disarmament, uh, self-determination. Did that happen? No, that didn't happen after the war. Uh, and, and so there were a lot of ideals that were expressed, but they weren't lived up to in the Treaty of Versailles. What happens in the Treaty of Versailles? The place was overrun by Morgan's agents. It was Morgan and the Morgan banking interests who were the ones who were calling the shots before the war. They were the ones who had, they were the official British banking agents. All of that vast amount of money that the British purchases they were making was going through the Morgan banks. This was all money in Morgan's coffers. You know, it's, it's, there was something obscene about this. Some people were making billions of dollars of profits, or at least uh, millions of dollars of profits, many millions of dollars of profits off the blood that was being shed among in, in throughout the war. You know, and that, that's, that's the ugliness of war, that, that there are people now, every time the United States sets, shoots off another drone in uh, Afghanistan or uh, in Syria or any place where we're doing this, in Northern Africa, uh, people are making profits off of that. So, uh, so clearly the United States, if it was going to get involved, was going to get involved on the side of the allies where our financial interests were and more of our countrymen came from those areas. Uh, but there was a, this propaganda campaign, I should mention what was going on. So anti-German, this propaganda effort. German language <clears throat> was removed from the high school and college curricula. German music was removed from the uh, repertoires that were being portrayed, played by American orchestras. Sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage. Uh, German measles now became Liberty measles. 
hamburgers were now Liberty Sandwiches. Uh, German Shepherds were now renamed Police Dogs. I mean, there was this, we saw some of that happening after Britain uh, and after Germany and France refused to support the United States in the invasion of Iraq in the cafeteria in the in the uh, Senate. Uh, uh, French fries were renamed Freedom Fries. I mean, the same kind of thing is happening in 2003 that happened in 1917 and 1918. This kind of blind patriotic nonsense uh, that takes over during war. And so when people are being lynched, what we had is you had mobs breaking into the Socialist Party headquarters, the IWW headquarters around the country. People like Frank Little were being lynched. The Washington Post says, well, but we're really excited to see this patriotism in the American heartland. And he said, if the, and they said, wrote, if a few lynchings are the price we have to pay, so be it. We're willing to accept that price. So it, was, it was a very ugly period in the United States and the period afterwards with the Palmer raids and the <clears throat> jailing and the uh, throwing the Russia, foreign radicals out of the country and stop shutting down the uh, the labor movement, the, the left wing movements. We went through a period between 1920 and 1933 or so in which the left is largely wiped out in the United States because of this, this kind of repression. For our young viewers, there was, a, I think, first time use of chemical weapons and increased use of aerial warfare in World War One. Can you provide a detailed account of this and also talk about what ramifications it had on the battlefield and also on international diplomacy? Uh, the first real use of chemical weapons was in uh, Balamau in Russia. And it was done by Germany, but it was not terribly successful. The first successful use, and when usually when people talk about the start of chemical warfare, they point to Ypres, Belgium, the second Belgium war, the second war battle of Ypres. And Germany did use uh, chlorine gas very effectively against the French troops. The headlines in the United States was that the French soldiers were dying in anguish. They were turning blue and green and yellow and suffocating and going insane from the horrors of the poison gas that was being used. The British tried to get revenge against Germany in the Battle of Luz, but the wind shifted and it blew back on the British troops. So that, but there was a lot of use of poison gas when the United States gets in the war in 1917, we set up the Chemical Warfare Service. And uh, the my university, American University, became the staging ground for all of this. The, the chemists flooded into American University. They constructed and took over 60 buildings, and they began to do the chemical warfare research. Uh, it was then weaponized at the Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. And the American chemical warfare, by, by 1918, the U.S. was producing three times as much as Britain, France, and Germany combined. Uh, and they had increasingly deadly 
kinds of mustard gas and lutecite and other gases that were being produced. The person who headed the program at the Edgewood Arsenal was a General Walker who had been a professor of chemistry at, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he said that by the end of the war, we had produced these uh, one ton mustard gas canisters that if we dropped them with our, through airplanes over a German city, the entire city would be wiped out. There'd be nothing left alive, not even a rat. He said when, when the war ended before they could be used, he said, we felt as if we'd been cheated of our prey. Uh, they wanted to use it. In fact, there were enormous amounts of chemical weapons on the docks ready to be shipped uh, for use against Germany in the war. But the war ended too soon and they regretted it. After the war, there was great effort nationally to ban the use of poison gas and chemical warfare again. But the American chemists, the American chemical industry was opposed to it. They opposed the Geneva Protocols to ban chemical warfare. And even though the rest of the world adopted it, the United States did not, never signed on. And I don't think Japan ever did either. So um, there was at least coming to an awareness. It's so different. The chemists led the fight against the Geneva Protocols. After World War II, you're going to have the nuclear physicists leading the fight for abolishing and banning nuclear weapons. The opposite after World War I. The chemists felt that they were the soldiers of democracy. They were finally being appreciated. And there were editorials in the New York Times or others who did applaud them and thank them for their great sacrifice for the war effort. Following World War I, there was a congressional proposal in 1934 to investigate individuals as well as corporations from profiting of war. Uh, yeah. Could you talk about uh, this investigation, provide us some context, its findings, and where it eventually led to? Uh, Senator Gerald Nye, senator from Nebraska, uh, led a bipartisan effort at the time, beginning in 1934, extending through 1936. They actually had hearings, and the debate was, if war broke out again, because war had become very unpopular. After World War I, the sentiment throughout the United States was that we had been bamboozled, we'd been tricked, dragged into this horrible war. And it wasn't a war for greater ideals or for democracy. It was a blood war. People can make their blood profits. In fact, the manufacturers, munitions makers, were called merchants of death widely throughout society. That's what they are. That's what they should be called now. Merchants of death, they should be on trial before in the Hague. They shouldn't be allowed to profit off of this. Uh, but that's what these people do. And there was an awareness. Look at the movies, movies like The Big Parade, great movie for, I think, 1926. Um, the great, a lot of terrific movies were coming out during this period, and they were anti-war. There were anti-war songs and anti-war books and plays and poems. Uh, e. e. Cummings and others. Uh, so uh, by 1934, the sentiment was strongly opposed to profiting off war. So Gerald Nye held these hearings and uh, they called in the DuPonts. The DuPonts profits, according to one New York Times headline, was DuPont profits up 800% because of the war. 
manufacturing. These people were considered what they were, scum of the earth, slime, vermin, uh, and subhuman. And, and so that was the widespread attitude in the United States during this period. And so the proposals were either for if war broke out, the first day of war nationalized the entire arms industry so they couldn't profit off it or else uh, raised a, uh, an, uh, they wanted to have a 98% tax on all uh, incomes over nine, over $10,000 in the event war broke out again. So people couldn't profit off this. There was a survey done to the American people, I think it was in 1936, because uh, the hearings went on, uh, and 82% wanted to abolish all profits from war and wanted to nationalize the industry in the event that war broke out. 82%, 18% were opposed. So this was the overwhelming sentiment. The attitude was that World War I was a horrible war. And that's part of why the Americans were so slow to get involved in World War II which in my opinion was a necessary war, given what Germany was doing and what Japan was doing. Uh, not a, you know, in the US we call it the good war. I don't think there is ever any such thing as a good war, but if there's any, a war that's justifiable, this was the one war that was. Uh, and, uh, but there was a strong anti-war sentiment. The Americans did not want to get dragged into another, uh, nonsensical, wasteful war in Europe. And so they were slow to wake up to what was actually happening there. Um, we could have stopped it earlier. Had we gotten involved in the, on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War, we could have defeated the Germans and the Italians there. Unfortunately, the only country that came to the Spanish Republic's aid was the Soviet Union. Uh, and there were a lot of issues around that as well. But in, when the, Italy began its efforts in in uh, uh, Libya, I mean, there were a lot of places where we could have intervened to stop this. But instead, we stuck to our dumb neutrality. And Roosevelt later recognized what a mistake that was. <clears throat> but so, so the hearings go on for a couple of years. Finally, <coughs> they turn against the uh, Nye committee efforts because they start to blame Wilson for lying the United States into the war. Wilson did lie the United States into the war, but the Democrats said this was too much. We can't tolerate that. Then you've got 76-year-old or 78-year-old Carter Glass, senator from Virginia, going before the Senate and starting pounding the, his desk, saying, how dare you? to defame our great leader, Woodrow Wilson. He's pounding that so hard, the blood is spurting out of his hand all over uh, as he's pounding the desk. And this is what's gonna turn the debate uh, against the proposals for uh, abolishing profits from war, nationalizing the industry. It's crazy. There are certain industries, certain issues that people should not be able to profit off of. One is sickness. Second is war and militarism. Um, I mean, there are others also, but uh, this is a basic decency kind of question. And these people now, they still advertise, they lobby in order to get the United States and other countries involved in wars. Uh, and the United States has an enormous defense budget. Of course, we should be cutting that in half, at least for starters. 
Uh, but Trump's budget is a record-breaking budget. So instead of doing what needs to be done, what we need in the United States is a Green New Deal. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and others have been advocating. Uh, and how are we going to finance that? By, by raising taxes on the wealthy, instead of Trump giving a $2 trillion tax cut to the wealthiest Americans, we'd be, have to be raising taxes. We need a wealth tax. And we need to be cutting the military budget and using that for something productive. Banning wartime profits, something very unthinkable today. But what an interesting discussion. We hope to continue it with you in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to see you again. Now follows Professor Kaznik on World War II and History of Nuclear Weapons, published February the 5th, 2019. Welcome to Know Your Stuff, a program aimed at educating on historical developments and societal concepts. My name is Zan Raza. Today I'm joined by Peter Kaznik, Professor of History and the Director of Nuclear Studies at the American University. He's also the author of numerous books, And the book that we will be specifically discussing today is called The Untold History of the United States. Peter Kuznick wrote this book together with film director and producer Oliver Stone. Peter Kuznick, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Too. Glad to be with you. So let's start with your book that you co-authored with Oliver Stone. Can you introduce the book, talk about why you decided to write it, and also list some facts that do not appear in mainstream historical discourse? Oliver and I were having dinner in 2007, and we were talking about history and politics like we always do. And in the middle of it, Oliver says to me, Peter, let's do a documentary. Uh, and he had the idea we'd do a one-hour documentary on the origins of the Cold War and the atomic bombings in 1945. I went to see him in New York the next week. Now he had the idea for a 10-hour, 10-part documentary film series. We ended up doing 12 hours, and midway through that process, we decided we needed to add a book because the amount of information we could convey in 58 minutes and 30 seconds was very frustrating, even if Oliver spoke quickly. Uh, so we ended up, initially, we thought maybe a coffee table book like the Ken Burns books, uh, but then the publishers all wanted a serious book, which I was much happier to do. So we ended up writing an 800-page book uh, that uh, got here. I think you showed it, The Untold History of the United States. Uh, and we also put out uh, a, a concise untold history of the United States, uh, which is not abridgment. It's really uh, based on the documentary scripts. But the big book... You know, Oliver's got a controversial reputation. And the films like JFK, we knew we were going to get attacked. So we've got more than 100 pages of footnotes in the, in the big book. Uh, we've now finished writing the new edition, which comes out in early April. And it's going to be more than 900 pages. We added a 150-page chapter on what's happened in the world between 2012 and 2019. So it takes us right up to the present. So the initial idea was it was going to be a history of the American empire and national security state. Uh, and we called it the untold history of the United States. We grappled 
with different titles, try to figure out the best one. We decided this. Uh, and it starts really in the late 19th century, because one of the turning points in American history is the Spanish-American War in 1898, followed by the U.S. occupation of the Philippines in 1899, and the massacre that goes on there for the next few years. So the United States began to change. Whereas the United States was once a leading uh, democratic, even pro-revolutionary nation, having been born in revolution itself, the United States gradually becomes the world's leading counter-revolutionary force. Then the United States starts intervening in country after country, initially mostly in Central America and South America. Uh, but after the U.S. involvement in World War I, the U.S. starts to take more of a global role. And, the UN, and New York replaces London as a center of world finance. Uh, so, but the real big turning point for us comes with World War II. Uh, not only the defeat of fascism and uh, Japanese militarism, but the use of the atomic bomb and then the start of the Cold War. So the world dramatically changes. The United States begins to acquire a real global empire. We get a lot of bases from the Brits in exchange for the uh, warships that we were giving them. And we create this global network. Uh, uh, by 1948, you've got George Kennan, the architect of the Cold War, the architect of US containment policy, uh, writing a secret memo in which he says, We've got 6.3% of the world's population, yet we control 50% of the world's wealth. The challenge that confronts us in this coming period is to maintain that position of disparity. We're not going to do so with idealistic slogans and freedom of the press and, and stressing freedom. We're only going to do that with hard power concepts. <clears throat> and that really is going to define the U.S. approach toward the Cold War. In 1949, in August, the Soviets test their atomic bomb. In 1949, the Chinese Revolution occurs and the formation of NATO. And we're going to see the hardening of those lines. 1950 to 53, we've got the Korean War, which still is not officially ended. Uh, and, and so we, then we go to this period in the 50s. In fact, it's interesting that in a year ago, 2018, January, the bulletin, the atomic scientists moved the hands of the doomsday clock two minutes before midnight, the closest we've been since the early 1950s. And what triggered it in the in 1952-53 was the U.S. test of the hydrogen bomb and then the Soviet test of a proto-hydrogen bomb in 53. And so they moved the hands to two, day, two minutes before midnight then, and now we're back at two minutes before midnight. So these are the kinds of issues that Oliver and I are looking at. The history of the militarization of the planet, consequences of the Pax Americana, in which the United States, well, you look at it globally, the richest eight people in the world, more wealth than the poorest 3.6 billion people. And that's the crazy world that we've constructed, a world in which two countries, the United States and Russia, control 93% of the world's nuclear weapons. 
two people, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, have veto power over the continued existence of our species. These are the things that trouble us. The fact that the U.S. is now bombing nine countries. Who does such things? The U.S. has an empire of 800 bases. Now, so we get at this whole question of American exceptionalism, which is at the core of so much of what America does. The idea that the United States is not only different from all other countries, but the United States is better than all other countries. The idea that, that the United States Whereas other countries are motivated by wanting more territory or power or political uh, control or military strength, the United States only wants to spread freedom and democracy. That's the vision that Americans are taught from the beginning, that we're benevolent, we're altruistic, we're generous, we're peace-loving. The reality is unfortunately very, very different. And so in that kind of world, we're trying to make sense out of what's happening and what should be happening instead. So talk about the sourcing of your book. How did you source a book and make your historical case as opposed to how traditional mainstream uh, historical books are written? I, I would not say that we're so fundamentally different because academia in the United States and much of the rest of the world is really a bastion of progressivism. Our interpretations are much more in line with left-wing academics in the United States, and left-wing dominates most of the historical profession, certainly, and a lot of other important social sciences, arts, and humanities. So we're not really out of step with them. What we're out of step with is what's taught in the high schools. What's the vision you get on television? Uh, and, and so it's a fairly traditional in that sense. We had, I had eight of my PhD students on the payroll as researchers. Uh, we were just re devouring everything. We did a lot of documentary research also in, in terms of the documents and the, uh, and the National Security Archive and the Cold War International History Project. I mean, there's a lot of very, very good sources out there. So the problem wasn't finding the material. The problem was shaping it into a narrative that made sense and one that could appeal to people. So what we did is we've got 12-hour, 12 12-part 12 documentary film series that's out. It was on Showtime here, 10 hours, and then it played all over the world, well, except for China. Uh, but then the book is out, and the big book is out in about 20 languages. Uh, and we're still working on more. Uh, the um, small book, Concise Untold History, is out in a lot of languages, and I think that's the one that's in Germany, uh, this one. Uh, as a, and then we've got the second volume of our four-volume Young Readers edition, just came out this past week. Uh, so that's for middle school and younger high school students. And now we've also got a graphic novel on the way. So what we're doing is trying to reach people any possible way we can, get them to just start questioning more, start thinking, developing counter narratives, uh, different ways of looking at the history of our planet for the past 120 plus years. 
You mentioned uh, nuclear weapons and uh, the fact that the atomic scientists have moved the clock two minutes to midnight. I want to get to where it all started, and that's one of the chapters of your book deals with that, Japan. Uh, what really happened during the end of World War II uh, when the atomic weapons were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? The perception here in Germany is it was, uh, our, it was essential for the U.S. to do that uh, so the war could end. However, you provide a different perspective in your book. Could you please talk about that? Well, my students have to sit through a 12-hour lecture on this topic. I'll try to consolidate it a little bit. Uh, the basic facts that people need to know. After the Battle of Saipan in July of 1944, the Japanese knew they were defeated. Uh, they had no more prospect for a traditional military victory. They began doing secret studies about how to end the war. In February 1945, Prince Kanoe, the former prime minister, wrote a memo to the emperor saying, I regret to tell you, but defeat is inevitable. The built challenge we have is to figure out how to prevent the communist revolution in the event of our surrender. Uh, U.S. intelligence had been basically saying the same thing. We showed that their transportation system was collapsing, the food supply was shrinking, access to energy was, was diminishing. Uh, the Japanese were in a lot of ways de defeated, but the American strategy was that we would have to have a blockade, we'd have to bomb their cities, and we'd have to invade. And so the belief in the United States, this is the public misperception, was that if the United States had not uh, dropped the atomic bombs, then the U.S. would have had to invade Japan, and that uh, Truman writes in his memoirs that General Marshall told him that a half million boys would be lost in the invasion. Some estimates were a trillion, uh, I mean a, mil a million. Uh, and so... In that situation, that was the justification, that the atomic bombings were actually a humane act, that it not only saved a half million American lives, but millions of Japanese who had been killed in the invasion. So Truman did a great thing by using the atomic bombs rather than invading. The reality is totally different, 180 degrees different. The reality is the Japanese were already militarily defeated and were searching for a way to end end the war. We know this because we had broken the Japanese codes early on in the war. We were intercepting their telegrams and the Japanese were, had decided that their best way to get better surrender terms, well, the surrender terms is a big issue. The U.S. was demanding unconditional surrender, which to Japan meant the execution of the emperor as a war criminal. To the Japanese, the emperor was a god. And MacArthur's Southwest Command issues a background report in the summer of 45 that says the execution of the emperor to them would be like the crucifixion of Christ to us. All would fight to die like ants. We knew that the Japanese would never accept unconditional surrender in that way. So one way to end the war was to change the surrender terms. Roosevelt dies on April 12, 1945. The person who should have replaced him was his former vice president, Henry Wallace. When, uh, to get, not to get too convoluted here, but the Democratic Convention, July 12, 
began July 20th, 1944. Gallup issued a poll asking people who they wanted on the ticket as vice president. 65% of American voters said they wanted Henry Wallace back on the ticket as vice president. 2% said they wanted Harry Truman. But the party bosses controlled the convention and they put Truman there instead of Wallace. Oliver and I argued that had Wallace been back on the ticket as vice president, become president on April 12th, there would have been no atomic bombing in World War II and probably no Cold War. But that's another discussion. But Truman is in, in power now. All Truman's advisors, except for Jimmy Burns, are urging him to change the surrender terms to let the Japanese know they can keep the emperor. Uh, Truman refuses to do that. Burns told him he'd be politically crucified if he let the Japanese keep the emperor. So that's one way to end, end the war sooner. And we know that because the cables, so the Japanese strategy, rather uh, ill-conceived, was to try to get the Soviets to intervene on their behalf to get them better surrender terms. What they didn't know is that we had a deal and at Yalta, uh, Roosevelt finally got Stalin to agree to come into the Pacific War three months after the end of the war in Europe. In exchange for that, the Russians were gonna get a lot of concessions that they wanted. So the Russians didn't have any interest in helping the Japanese get better surrender terms before Russia got into the war. But the other way to end the war was wait for the Soviet invasion, which was scheduled to begin around August 8th, August 9th, three months after the end of the war in Europe. Uh, and American, US intelligence and British intelligence have been saying for months that as soon as the Soviets enter the war, that all Japanese will know that further resistance is futile, that it will end the war almost immediately, the Soviet entry itself. <clears throat> so the Soviets do enter, but to back up even a little bit more, Truman arrives at Potsdam, I think it was July 15th. Stalin assures him the Russians are coming in on schedule. Truman writes in his diary that night, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th, finny Japs when that occurs. He knew the Japanese were finished when the Russians, the Soviets invaded. He writes home to his wife, Bess, the next day and says the Russians are coming in. We'll end the war a year sooner now. Think of all the kids who won't be killed. You know, Truman knew that. And Truman refers on July 18th to the intercepted Japanese telegram as, quote, the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. So the, the, clearly the American leaders all knew that the Japanese were finished, that there were two ways to end the war without using the atomic bombs, and that the Soviets knew better than anybody how desperate the Japanese were to surrender because a former prime minister Hirota had met a couple of times with the Soviet ambassador in Tokyo, Malik, and Malik writes back to the Kremlin that the Japanese are desperate to surrender. This is in, in June and July. So when the, the atomic bomb, then the question is, so why does the United States use the bomb? Truman is not bloodthirsty. He's not Hitler. Uh, but the United States' primary motive in using the bomb was to send a message to the Soviets that they mess with U.S. plans in Europe or in Asia, this is what's gonna to happen to them. And that's exactly how 
uh, all the Soviet leaders interpret it. That the bomb was not dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bombs were dropped on Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, so, so that that was really uh, what was going on. And so it's, it's a key factor in the start of the Cold War because we were the U.S. and the Soviets were still allies at that point, and there were a lot of forces that were trying to hold us together. The Cold War is a disastrous period in human history. We're lucky to have survived it. And the U.S. then has an atomic monopoly, which we continue to build up. The Soviets test their bomb in August of 49. And we've got the race for the hydrogen bomb. But uh, And then we got to the point, I used to, I take students every summer on a study abroad trip to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's a class we offer at American University. And I'd always find myself writing down the same inscription from the display at the Hiroshima A-bomb museum, that by 1985, the world had accumulated the equivalent of 1.47 million Hiroshima bombs. We had 70,000 nuclear weapons. What do we need one and a half million Hiroshima bombs for? How many times over do we have to kill everybody on this planet? And we still have that capability. If we've got some time, I'd be happy to talk about nuclear winter in the current state of the nuclear insanity. So I just want to summarize this as short as I can. So if I understood you correctly, an undemocratic leader in Truman comes into power, sidelining a progressive. And this leader, President Truman, knew that uh, there are better terms of surrender, there's a better way to go around it, yet chooses to bomb uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, thereby igniting the Cold War and the situation we are today. Is, is this a fair way to put it? Uh, it's actually even worse. <laughs> the Truman knew and said on at least three occasions explicitly, he understood he was beginning a process that could end all life on the planet. His first big briefing on the bomb, he was vice president for 82 days. Nobody had enough regard for him to even tell him that we were building an atomic bomb. He doesn't even find out about the bomb project uh, till after he's sworn in at the emergency cabinet meeting on the night of April 12th. And uh, um, Stimson mentions it to him, Secretary of War Stimson, but he says, I was distracted. I didn't really pay any attention. The next day, Jimmy Burns flies up from South Carolina and he has any briefs Truman about what's going on. Truman writes in his memoir, he says, Jimmy Burns said a weapon great enough to destroy the whole world. Truman gets a full briefing on April 25th from General Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project and Secretary of War Stimson. And Truman comments after that, that Stimson said, even if we had the bomb, maybe we should never use it because it could end up ending life on the planet. Truman says, and I agreed with him. Then when Truman's at Potsdam on July 25th, he gets a full briefing on how powerful the bomb test at Alamogordo, New Mexico was. And Truman writes in his journal that night, we've discovered the most terrible bomb in history says, quote, this may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous ark. To kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people 
in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, women and children is a war crime. But to threaten or begin a process that you know, know could end all life on the planet goes far beyond that. And that's the reality that we've lived with ever since. So the story, United States had eight five-star admirals and generals in 1945. Seven of them are on record saying that the atomic bombings were either militarily unnecessary, morally reprehensible, or both. <clears throat> the chair, Truman's personal chief of staff was Admiral William Leahy, who also chaired the meetings of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Leahy said the Japanese were already defeated in, before the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He said use of this horrific weapon put us on the moral level of the barbarians of the Dark Ages. General MacArthur, who wanted to use atomic bombs in Korea, MacArthur said the Japanese would have surrendered in May, three months earlier, if we told them they could keep the emperor. Uh, Eisenhower said was briefed by Stimson at Potsdam about the imminent use of the bomb. And Eisenhower said, I got very depressed. And then he asked me for my opinion. So I told him my war in Europe was already over. Said, but listening to you, I got so depressed. He said, first of all, uh, the Japanese were already defeated and there was no need for such a weapon. Number two, I hated to see our country be the first to use such a weapon. Uh, but, but we can look at the same kind of comments from the other top military leaders. So, and, and now if you go, and what finally ends the war is not the atomic bomb, it was the Soviet invasion. That's what changed the equation. The United States has been firebombing Japanese cities for months now. We have firebombed more than 100 Japanese cities. Destruction reached as high as 99.5% in the city of Toyama. The Japanese accepted that we could firebomb and wipe out their cities. They accepted that. To them, it didn't make a big difference if it was one plane and one bomb or 200 planes and 10,000 bombs. They accepted we could wipe out their cities. What changed the equation was the vast Red Army that they had dreaded all along invading Manchuria, in the Kuril Islands, in Sakhalin. Uh, and, and as Prime Minister Suzuki says on August 10th, he was asked why the Japanese had to surrender so quickly. He says, well, they've already blown through our, the Kwantung army in Manchuria. Uh, they've taken Karafuto. Tomorrow they'll be in Hokkaido. The foundation of Japan will be destroyed. We have to surrender while we can surrender to the Americans. And so the United States does let them keep the emperor ultimately because uh, it was in the U.S. interest to maintain stability afterwards. But if you go to the official U.S. Navy Museum in Washington, D.C., it's got a display now that says correctly that there was almost no discussion in the Japanese cabinet of the atomic bombs. Uh, the discussion all focused on the Soviet invasion, and that's what convinced them to end the war. And we knew that. Our intelligence was saying that that would be the case. So the, the world gets off to a pretty horrific start uh, in 1945, the end of the war and the beginning of the nuclear arms race. Let's pick up on that. Since uh, World War II, even though there was a big escalation in the nuclear arsenal and many more countries joined the club, there were certain safeguards when it came to ballistic missiles, nuclear um, weaponry that were put in place. Can you talk a bit about the history of all these treaties? that were signed um, 
and whether they achieved their goal and what their statuses are today? Well, there were the SALT treaties, but the major treaties were the ABM treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which the United States abrogated in 2002, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Now, the Europeans understand how important that was because you had the Tomahawk and Pershing missiles that the U.S. put into Germany and other parts of Europe, and the Soviets had the SS-20s, and if those were fired at each other, we had about a 10-minute warning time on that. At least the ICBMs, you have a 30-minute warning time. But there was that, but when you have such a short window, you've got to decide immediately. And the intelligence is often flawed, as we've seen and we can talk about. So the INF Treaty was an important one. Donald Trump has now announced that he wants to withdraw from the INF Treaty also. So you've got the ABM Treaty gone. The INF Treaty is going to be gone. The first phone conversation between Putin and Donald Trump after Trump was elected, Putin says to him, we need to extend, we need to talk about extending the New START Treaty. The New START Treaty limited the number of nuclear weapons and launchers. Uh, and so that was the last restraint on the nuclear arms race, nuclear anarchy. And so Trump, as uh, so Putin says, we need to extend it when it expires in 2021. Trump puts down the phone and asks his advisors in the room, what's the new START treaty? They tell him what it is. He gets back on the phone. He says, no, no, we don't like that one either. We're not going to extend that. I mean, and so that's what's so frightening about what's going on now. Trump said, uh, what's the point of having nuclear weapons if we can't use them? To a sane human being, that means let's get rid of them. To Donald Trump, it means let's make them more usable. So in February of 2018, Trump issued his new nuclear posture review, which not only talks about developing new weapons, it talks about making smaller weapons that'll be more usable. But you can't just blame this on, on Trump because he's got a lot of uh, co-conspirators when it comes to wanting to end life on the planet. Among them was Barack Obama. Remember in 2009, Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize for his Prague speech calling for nuclear abolition. You know, we thought that was strange at the time, a man waging two wars and bombing other countries would, would get the Nobel Peace Prize, but it was a recognition of his call for nuclear abolition. Well, as he says in that speech, the United States won't be the first country to abolish its nuclear weapons, will be the last country. And he was uh, certainly true to that word. Uh, and Obama began a 30-year modernization program. It was supposed to be a trillion-dollar modernization program of the, every aspect of the nuclear arsenal. Now the official estimate is 1.2 trillion. The unofficial estimate is 1.7 trillion. The goal of that was to make nuclear weapons more efficient and more usable. And and so this is Obama's legacy, uh, which Trump has now picked up on and is doubling down on. So in response to the American modernization, all nine nuclear powers are modernizing their nuclear arsenals. In Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address, March 1st, 2018, Putin announced that Russia has developed five new nuclear weapons, all of which can circumvent U.S. missile defense. Uh, and so, but we see this everywhere. Uh, this, this March 
rush toward insanity on a global scale. We have the nuclear insanity, uh, and they're going to probably move the hands of doomsday clock even closer to midnight on January 24th. Uh, so we've got that coming, but we also have the climate insanity. You know, the, the experts have said there's been a one, per, one degree Celsius rise in uh, global warming since the Industrial Revolution. The, the leading experts said the planet can tolerate with damage a two degree Celsius rise uh, uh, at, at most. If we go beyond that, then we're going to look at, you know, a three degree Celsius rise means much of India and China becomes uninhabitable. It means that the coastal cities have to be abandoned. It means the polar ice caps melt. Island nations will be submerged between below the water. It'll be a disaster. Now, a lot of the experts are saying we hope for a three degree Celsius rise. Some are saying that four degrees Celsius, uh, the World Banks and others are predicting that it could be as much as four degrees Celsius. Five degrees in human civilization is finished. And so do we have any kind of real leadership about this or leadership on any of these issues? That's what troubles me so much. I looked at our leaders, you know, and they're all pygmies. They're all nationalists. Trump's slogan, make America great again, endorsing American nationalism. You know, but, and, you know, Putin might be a little bit better, but he's not providing the kind of planetary leadership that we need. Xi Jinping, the stuff he's doing, the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea makes no sense to me, this nine dash line. There's enough wealth and resources to be shared. And, and so, but we have nobody who's speaking for humanity. We have nobody who's speaking for the planet. Uh, and I just got back from India uh, and I was going to meet with Rahul Gandhi. We weren't able to do it. There's new elections in India in May. Uh, there's a good chance that Rahul Gandhi at the head of a broad progressive coalition could become the next prime minister. India will soon outstrip China in terms of population. By 2030, India will be the second biggest economy in the world. And we need to have, and India's got traditions, going back to Gandhi, going back to Nehru. Nehru not only led the third world movement against the U.S. and Soviet blocs, he also led the movement for nuclear abolition to stop nuclear testing. India's got these proud traditions. And so, and so what we need is some leaders. I can see an axis between uh, Rahul Gandhi and Moon Jae-in. I mean, why did we have progress in India? Not because of the clown in Washington, you know, Diaper Donald, not because of him. We have progress in India because the, I mean, in, in, in Korea, because there was a candlelight revolution that brought Moon Jae-in to power. And Moon Jae-in took tremendous initiative toward North Korea. And the North Koreans responded. Trump tried to sabotage it initially. We thought a year ago that we were on the verge of war. The head of the Council on Foreign Relations said that there was a 50% chance of the U.S. going to war with North Korea. You know, it was that dangerous situation. But Moon Jae-in took the initiative, and I could see a force, a counterforce, of nations wanting to really support peace and development and disarmament beginning to emerge 
baked around Rahul Gandhi and Boon Jae-in and some others coming on board with that, rather than the warmongering that we see in the planet now. Could you talk about, uh, given that there's a complete media blackout on this issue, there's no discussions and analysis or solutions being presented, uh, could you quickly talk about what individuals could do to help make people conscious about this and bit connect uh, the nuclear movement of the 80s and what young people could learn from that today? In five minutes, please. Um, the nuclear movement of the 80s is a good example because we had the beginning of what felt like then the new Cold War. After the period, after the Cuban Missile Crisis to the early, to the election of Ronald Reagan, there's a period of relative quiet in which nuclear issues kind of disappeared. Then when Reagan came in there and talking about the axis of, well, his version of that, the evil empire, and building up America's defenses and America's nuclear capabilities and the Russians responding and the sense of a new Cold War all over the planet again, the world responded with a tremendous anti-nuclear movement. My friend Jonathan Schell wrote a fabulous book called The Fate of the Earth. Uh, but there was the march of a million people in Central Park, anti-nuclear march in Central Park, New York. Among the participants was a young Columbia undergraduate named Barack Obama, who uh, actually marched there, which is why I trusted that he maybe was sincere about wanting to get rid of nuclear weapons. But then, then we went to sleep after that. Gorbachev reached out. And the, after the meeting at Reykjavik in 1986, where we came within one word of abolishing nuclear weapons, if Reagan were willing to limit the testing of Star Wars, his stupid fantasy, uh, into the, limited to the laboratory for 10 years, Gorbachev was going to sign the agreement to get rid of all nuclear weapons. We came so close to Reykjavik. The INF Treaty was kind of the booby prize for not have, for having failed on getting rid of nuclear weapons completely. Uh, and But since then, you thought then with the end of the Cold War in 1991, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, we were going to have a period of peace and detente. What happens instead? So George H.W. Bush praises Gorbachev for his restraint in Germany and Eastern Europe. Uh, and what does the U.S. do? Invades Panama. The U.S. Goes inv gets involved, invades in the Gulf War, first Gulf War. The, the neocons who were just forming in that period, led by Charles Krauthammer. In 1990, Krauthammer writes an article and gives talks. He says, this is the, uh, the unipolar moment. The United States is the unipolar force in the world. We are the world's great hegemon. Nobody can challenge us anywhere. Uh, and he says the unipolar moment could last 20 or 30 years. By 2003, after the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, Krauthammer writes a new piece in which he says it's no, that I underestimated it in 1991. It's not a unipolar moment. It's a unipolar era. And he says this could last indefinitely, could last hundreds of years. The United States will dominate the world. It got so bad that on January 5th, 2003, the New York Times headlined its Sunday magazine section, American Empire, get used to it. The neocons were you know, flourishing. 
in the Bush administration. And but by 2005, things had gone so poorly in Afghanistan, so poorly in Iraq uh, that Krauthammer was wrote again and said, I was wrong. The unipolar era and the unipolar moment are over. The United States does not have that kind of power and control, you know, which we've seen. The United States has been unable. Yeah, we can invade Grenada in 1983 and defeat a couple dozen Cuban construction workers and wave the flag and say America's back standing tall and proud on its feet again. The Vietnam syndrome is buried. You know, we can do that. But military solutions don't work. We got involved in Syria, the secret covert CIA programs. At that point, the New York Times was saying that dozens had been had died in the Syrian civil war. We fuel the opposition there, Operation Timber Sycamore. It's led in part to hundreds of thousands of deaths there. When do we learn the lesson? We haven't learned that lesson. One, one person I don't usually agree with is Samuel Huntington, Clash of Civilizations. But Huntington had some insights on occasion, and he said the West won the world not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion, but by the superior application of organized violence. Westerners often forget that fact. Non-Westerners never do. And we have not learned that lesson, you know, and, and it doesn't work at this point. And uh, the war on terror was a disaster. We've sown, but, but if you look at the neocons hit list, they said, well, after Afghanistan, we go and take Iraq. Then we take Syria. Then we take Libya. Then we do Iran. Then we do Somalia. They had a list and they were all repeating this. That was their mantra. But we've seen what that's produced. Chaos, disruption, war, death, poverty, suffering. You know, we've got to begin thinking in different terms. Peter Kuznick, what an interesting discussion. I hope to continue with this in the near future. Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. Thank you. Now follows Professor Norm Chomsky about the untold history of U.S. hegemony and intervention in Europe, published in November the 18th, 2015. Welcome to Activism Munich, Professor Norm Chomsky. Thank you for joining us again. Glad to be with you. So I want to start with you um, with some historical perspective and let's work our way up from there. Before the Second World War, um, what view did the United States government have of fascism in Germany? What was the political and military relationship between Berlin and Washington? Well, it was a mixed story. Uh, uh, Roosevelt himself was, had a mixed attitude. So, so uh, he, for example, he was pretty supportive of Mussolini's fascism. In fact, described uh, Mussolini as uh, that admirable Italian gentleman. Uh, he later uh, concluded that uh, uh, Mussolini had been misled by his association with Hitler and had been led kind of down a wrong path. But Amer uh, the American uh, business community, the power systems in the United States were highly supportive of Mussolini. In fact, even the parts of the, the labor bureaucracy were. Uh, Fortune magazine, for example, the major business journal, I think in 1932, had an issue uh, with the headline, 
I'm quoting it. The WAPs are unwapping themselves. The WAP is a kind of a, a derogatory term for Italians, and the WAPs are finally unwapping themselves under Mussolini. They're becoming part of the civilized world. It's uh, uh, and uh, uh, there was criticism of the uh, 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 Italian invasion of Ethiopia, a lot of criticism, but uh, basically pretty supportive attitude towards uh, Mussolini's fascism. When Germany, when uh, Hitler took over, the attitude was more mixed. There was a concern for potential threat, but nevertheless, uh, the general approach of the U.S., the British even more so, was fairly supportive. So, for example, in 1937, the State Department described Hitler as uh, a kind of a moderate, uh, fending off the dangerous forces of the right. Uh, sorry? Uh, excuse me, there was a technical problem. Just continue. Oh, I should continue? Yes, please. Uh, the State Department uh, uh, described Hitler as a moderate who was holding off the forces, the dangerous forces of the left, meaning uh, the Bolsheviks, the labor movement, and so on, and of the right, uh, namely the extremist Nazis. And Hitler was kind of in the middle, and therefore we should kind of support him. Uh, this is a pretty familiar stance, incidentally, in many other cases. Uh, uh, George Kennan, later famous as one of the architects of post-war policy. It was actually the American consul in Berlin uh, up until Pearl Harbor. And uh, he was sending back reports, uh, which are public, uh, which were qualified. They said, we shouldn't be too harsh in condemning the Nazis. There's a lot of what they're doing is kind of understandable. They, you know, we could get along with them and so on. This is one strain, and a major one. There was also plenty of criticism and condemnation, but the general attitudes were fairly mixed. This is sometimes called when, uh, at the Munich conference, late 38, uh, uh, Roosevelt sent his uh, most trusted advisor, Sumner Wells, uh, to Munich, and Wells came back with a pretty positive report saying we can really work with Hitler, it's, uh, this conference opens the possibility of a period of peace and justice for Europe, and uh, uh, we should uh, work out ways to uh, interact and deal with them. Now, that was late 1938, okay? Uh, and uh, so it was a, quite a mixed story. Actually, there's good, there's good scholarly literature on this if you want to go through the details. Let's take a step forward then in history. In your speech, Who Owns the World, that you held in the University of Massachusetts, you surfaced from internal documents a scheme known as the Grand Area. Could you talk about the Grand Area and specifically what role Germany was assigned within it? Uh, this is uh, scholarly work on the Council on Foreign Relations and the State Department. The uh, Council on Foreign Relations is the major non-governmental institution concerned with foreign affairs. It's, uh, it draws from a wide range of elite elements, uh, business, politics, others, academic, and so on. 
uh, it publishes the journal Foreign Affairs, which is the main establishment foreign affairs journal. Uh, from 1939 until 1945, the Council on Foreign Relations and the State Department uh, held regular planning sessions uh, in which they uh, tried to analyze the wartime situation and uh, lay plans for the post-war economy. Uh, in the, and they developed the concept which they called Grand Area. Uh, the Grand Area was defined as a region that the U.S. must control in the post-war era. It included, of course, the Western Hemisphere. It included the former British Empire, which the U.S. was intending to largely take over. Maybe Britain would be a junior partner. And uh, as much of uh, uh, Europe, the commercial and industrial center of Europe, as much of that as possible, certainly Western Europe, its industrial, technological, commercial center. Uh, in the early stages of the war, it was assumed that there would be a, a, an American-controlled area, the Grand Area, and a German-controlled area. And they thought in the early stages of the war, it looked as if Germany would be successful in carving out an area. Uh, after Stalingrad, and at the time when the Russian forces were beginning to grind down the Germans, drive them back toward Central Europe, uh, the, uh, the uh, conception changed. They realized increasingly that Germany would not survive as a dominant force in the world. So the conception of the Grand Area extended beyond. Uh, this area was defined as one in which the United States would have uh, uh, pretty much complete economic and political control. And... Uh, uh, exercises of sovereignty by others which challenge this control would not be permitted. I can't give the exact wording right offhand, but it's something like that. You can easily find it. Now, the major study of this was done by uh, two young American political scientists, uh, Larry Shoup and William Minter, in a book called Imperial Brain, Brain, uh, Brain Trust. Uh, Larry Shoup, incidentally, has just come out with a new book uh, studying uh, Council on Foreign Relations uh, programs in the later period. But that's the general conception. And it was pretty realistic. If you look at the power relations in the world, this was not an unrealistic picture. Uh, remember that the United States emerged from the Second World War in a position of power that had no historical parallel. Uh, the U.S. had literally... 50% of world wealth. Uh, it had incomparable security, controlled the Western Hemisphere, controlled both oceans, controlled the opposite sides of both oceans, uh, had uh, overwhelming military power, economic power. It was uh, other industrial societies had been either seriously harmed or sometimes virtually destroyed by the war. Uh, the war was uh, very beneficial to the U.S. economy. Industrial production virtually quadrupled. Uh, wartime spending ended the Depression, which had not been ended before. Enormous stimulus to the economy. Uh, there was, uh, technology was developed, which laid the basis for post-war growth. It was, uh, in that context, uh, 
grand area planning of the kind I described was by no means unrealistic. And furthermore, it was put into effect, it was, it was implemented. If you look at the policies uh, implemented and developed in the early post-war period, they followed these prescriptions uh, pretty closely. Uh, read, for example, the uh, policy documents of the State Department policy planning staff headed by George Kennan by then. They more or less spell out a particular uh, variants of these programs. Uh, each region of the world was assigned what was called its function. So uh, the function of Southeast Asia would be to provide uh, raw materials and resources, uh, not just for the United States, but primarily for the former colonial powers, uh, which needed them in order to get uh, dollars so that they could purchase the U.S. manufacturing surplus. And Germany's function? Germany's particular? Well, it took a couple of years, but within a few years, Germany began to be reconstituted as a central part of the uh, Grand Air, it wasn't called Grand Air anymore, it was a part of the uh, U.S.-dominated global system. Uh, by uh, the early 1950s, uh, there were steps towards rearm, rearm, incidentally, part of this program, I should say, beginning actually in the 1943-1944 was to undermine the anti-fascist resistance almost everywhere. At first in Italy, the first place where the U.S. and British forces penetrated. The Italian resistance had pretty was holding down probably half a dozen German divisions, and parts of Italy had were beginning to reconstruct an independent society. Uh, all of this was dismantled as the U.S. and British forces moved through the peninsula, and they pretty much reinstated the traditional order, including fascist sympathizers. And similar programs were adopted uh, in other parts of occupied Europe as the United States Britain took over, including Germany. In fact, uh, uh, Kennan at one point post-war planner, said that uh, uh, the West ought to wall off, that's his phrase, wall off Western Germany from the Eastern zone because there was danger of the, uh, what they regarded as danger of the labor-based, uh, what they called communist uh, policies uh, affecting uh, the West might affect them. In Italy, where there was a strong communist party, uh, which was probably going to win the first 1948 election. Now, the U.S. poured enormous resources into making sure that they wouldn't win the election, uh, uh, making it very clear to Italians in many ways that if they allowed the communists to take control, they'd be in deep trouble. One uh, State Department official said the policies have to be clear enough so that the dumbest WAP can understand. Uh, going to strangle them unless they vote the right way in the first free election. Uh, in Greece, uh, the, uh, at first the British moved in, they faced a strong, they tried to crush the anti-fascist resistance, they weren't able to do it, the Americans came in to join them, and there was a major war in which probably 150,000 Greeks were killed. The, the uh, end result was a restoration of something like the traditional society, including fascist elements, and the tragedy of Greece goes on from there. And, uh, 
later in the 1960s, there was a real outright fascist coup in Greece, military fascist coup, strongly supported by the U.S., uh, continued supported until it was overthrown by the Greeks in the mid-70s. Excuse me for interrupting you. Let's move forward to um, economic policies during that uh, era in Europe. There was a huge rebuilding effort in Germany under uh, the Marshall Plan, and in Germany it's seen um, in the mainstream perception in historical literature, it's seen as a very noble endeavor. Um, it was based on uh, principles of cooperation and so forth and so on. However, in your book titled Understanding Power, you write, and let me quote you here, Marshall Plan was designed largely as an export promotion operation for American business, not as the noblest effort in history, and it failed. Can you please elaborate on that, please? Uh, that's approximately what it did. I mean, most of the Marshall Plan uh, money actually was transferred uh, from one bank to another in the United States. Uh, part of the Marshall, there was a big problem at the time, a major problem of, uh, uh, over, of uh, uh, industri industrial production. The U.S. had a big surplus of industrial production and the world just didn't have markets. The world was virtually devastated by the war. So part of the attempt to create markets for U.S. excess production was what I described before, uh, ensuring that the former colonial areas would provide dollars uh, through uh, to Europe so they could purchase U.S. industrial productions called triangular trade programs. Another was the Marshall Plan, which did provide funding to purchase American exports. In the course of it, Europe did develop, uh, incidentally, about, I think, uh, probably $2 billion or so of the $13 billion that went for uh, oil imports. That was part of the U.S. effort to turn Europe into an oil-dependent economy. The United States controlled the oil. Europe had coal, not oil. And uh, same in Japan, to try to turn them into oil-dependent economies. The, region, the reason, which was, again, expressed clearly by George Kennan, was uh, that if we did that, we would have what he called veto power over their policies, because we would essentially control the energy spigots. Uh, so all of that was, uh, it's not to deny, but in fact was true, that it did help European recovery to some extent, uh, how much is argued, but to some extent it did uh, develop the uh, European uh, economy, but it was also a big boost to the United States. In fact, uh, if you look at the business literature in the United States, uh, they describe this program correctly as uh, the source of the modern multinational corporation that provided opportunities for uh, the U.S. multinationals then beginning to develop expansive, extensively, uh, to move into Europe as a major uh, place, uh, area for investment, production, uh, marketing, and so on. So as a, like most uh, governments uh, don't, aren't um, altruistic uh, institutions, uh, they're working for their interests, and that means the interests of dominant elements within the society. And uh, they can sometimes have beneficial effects, but those are rarely the driving forces, not just the United States, anyone else as well. 
Now that you have given us a historical perspective, let's move to uh, certain developments that have been happening today. According to a report by the Department of Defense dated June 2015, there are 44,660 US, US troops stationed in Germany. It is estimated that there are circa, and reports vary, but let me just point this out, 170 military installations um, and one of the most vital being Rammstein, where um, drone operations, as you know, are conducted from there. What do you think is the view of the U.S. political and military establishment towards Germany today? Has, is, there any, has, is there any significant change since what, what you've described before? Well, if you go back, back to the early 50s, uh, there was always concern that Europe might move in an independent direction, independent of U.S. power. It might become what was called at the time a third force in international affairs. Now, the dominant force was the United States. The second, the second force was the junior superpower, Soviet Union, Russia, Soviet Union. And there was concern that Europe, which is, of course, a rich, developed, advanced area, uh, might just move in an independent direction. Uh, there were various proposals for this, like uh, de Gaulle advocated what he called a Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals, including the major parts of Russia, major developed parts of Russia. Uh, Willy Brandt's uh, Ostpolitik was another move in that direction. And the US was always concerned with it. In fact, one of the functions of NATO, it's generally understood, was to keep, to ensure that Europe would remain under the U.S. aegis, would not move towards an independent direction. And those concerns still exist and in some ways are even greater. Uh, Europe does have the capacity uh, under German initiative to uh, move in an independent direction. And there are some, there's some steps in that direction. In fact, it's very current, in fact. It takes, say, the uh, Iran nuclear deal that was just made. Uh, the European powers Germany, France are very enthusiastic about it. They're moving directly to try to reestablish commercial other relations with Iran. Uh, European, uh, the, uh, the ministers of the government uh, or the corporation executives are flocking to Tehran to try to set up deals and arrangements. It's not happening from the United States. On the contrary, it's even possible, possible that uh, the U.S. might uh, uh, undermine the agreement, not the executive, but Congress might find ways to undermine the agreement. In fact, if you take a look at the Republican primaries taking place right now, uh, just about every leading uh, uh, candidate has said that when he's elected, he's going to cancel the agreement. In fact, several of them have said, when we're elected, we're going to bomb Iran. Now, that's quite different from the European attitude. And it's one of a number of ways, there are quite a few, in which Europe and uh, the United States, or the dominant elements in the United States, have are following different paths. Uh, this, this kind of conflict has existed for a long time. Uh, as I say, it goes back to the early 50s, and it takes different forms at different times. With U.S. power declining in the world relatively 
to others. It's still overwhelmingly dominant, but it is declining. Now, the options for Europe increase might move in that direction. Uh, and of course, Europe means primarily Germany. In September of this year, the U.S. announced that it will be sending around 20 new type of B-6112 nuclear bombs here in Germany at the Büchel Air Base. Each of these bombs has 80 times the explosive power of uh, the nuclear bomb that exploded in Hiroshima. And um, most notably, German taxpayers will cover one-fifth of these costs. Do you think that Germany is violating Article 1 and 2 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which it ratified, I think, in 2003? Well, that's a... You know, these treaties are somewhat vague in their formulation, so whether it's an explicit violation is a kind of technical question. The more important question is, should Germany be doing it? And in my view, absolutely not. Uh, the existence of nuclear weapons is a major threat to survival. If you look over the record of the past 70 years, it's a virtual miracle that we've survived, literally. There are a number of times when the world has come literally a few minutes from a terminal nuclear war. Uh, so in uh, 1979, for example, uh, there was the U.S. automated response systems had detected what they determined to be a Russian attack. Uh, the, the reaction should have been a, a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia. Uh, the uh, National Security Advisor, this big new Brzezinski, was virtually on the telephone to tell the president, authorize a nuclear attack, when information came in saying it was a false alarm. Uh, in 1983, a couple of years later, the Reagan administration was carrying out simulated attacks against Russia to test Russian defenses. Operation Able Archer, it was called including nuclear threats. The Russians took it pretty seriously, it turns out, and there was a major. We now know that it was a real war scare. But right at that time, the Russian automated systems uh, detected what they took to be an American missile attack. The protocol was for there was a single human being named Stanislav Petrov, who was supposed to take those reports, hand them over to the high command, in which case there probably would have been a preemptive strike. Uh, he just decided not to do it. Now, that's why we're here talking about it. And there are many other cases like that, including real adventurism, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, others, complicated story. But to maintain these systems is, uh, uh, at every moment, uh, raises the possibility of a serious nuclear attack. And remember, an attack by any major power will destroy the attacker, even if there's no response because of the effects of nuclear winter. It's been understood for decades. So to try to increase these threats is grotesque. They ought to be reduced, not increased, uh, if we intend to survive. And uh, now is a period of considerable tension where something could break out over Ukraine, maybe over Syria, and so on. Uh, the expansion of NATO to the borders of Russia after the Soviet Union collapsed uh, was, I think, a, a, a serious error of policy, not just error, it's 
understatement. Uh, and it's uh, a large part of the problem that's uh, leading to the Ukraine confrontation now. This incidentally was in violation of verbal promises, not written ones, but verbal promises to Gorbachev who thought that the unification of Germany would mean uh, no expansion to the east. It was not the U.S. view. So these are really dangerous developments, I think. I want to talk about some uh, single examples and uh, work on to the greater mechanisms that are at work here. So Germany re recently dropped a case that was investigating the abuses of the NSA, uh, which was revealed by Edward Snowden's uh, uh, whistleblowing actions. And details included such as eavesdropping on our chancellor's cell phone, even collecting metadata of 20 to 20 to 30 million uh, German citizens on a regular basis. And this investigation was dropped. And if we look back a decade, El Masri, a German national, uh, was detained in a holiday in Macedonia by the CIA and extradited to Egypt, where he was tortured extensively. And it was later determined that he's uh, innocent. Now, in both cases, our prosecution went after it, but at the federal level, it was dropped at some point. Um, and we've come to know that U.S. is at play here. So what mechanisms are at play here that always align German policy to U.S. interests? Germany and uh, France and other European countries have, their governments have made a decision to subordinate themselves to U.S. power. It shows up in these ways and many others. Uh, you recall when uh, uh, the president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, uh, flew, happened to fly to Moscow and was flying back to Bolivia on a, in a plane that had diplomatic immunity, of course. Uh, the European countries, including Germany and France, just wouldn't let him go through their airspace, obviously on U.S. orders. The U.S. thought that maybe Snowden was on board. So they wouldn't let him enter the airspace. The plane was finally, uh, finally had to land in Austria, where it was invaded by Austrian police in violation of every imaginable diplomatic uh, convention uh, to find out if Snowden was on it. Now, all of this is uh, it's kind of pitiful. It's a revelation of real cowardice in the face of uh, power that the European elites are unwilling to confront uh, a sign of subordination and real lack of dignity and integrity, in my view. And the cases you mentioned are examples. Um, the idea that uh, there are, I think, by now four Latin American countries that offer asylum to Snowden, not one European country. In fact, they won't even let them cross their borders. Uh, why? The, the master in Washington tells him we don't want him to. And, what he, what, and Snowden, it's important to recall, performed enormous service, a patriotic service, in fact, to the people of the United States and the world. He revealed to the population what your government is doing to you. That's just what he should have done. That's, what a, that's the responsibility of a decent citizen. The idea that he should be punished for this is really grotesque, and that Europe participates in it is even worse. Same is true of Assange. Um, 
There's some, there's some, um, there's some resistance to U.S. military presence here, such as peaceful demonstrations that take place here Monday in Munich every Monday, and yearly demonstrations against the Security Conference in Munich, and more recently uh, demonstrations are developing in Ramstein, uh, in front of the drone base. However, these grassroots actions are immediately associated to uh, the nationalism of the 30s, that we are uniting as a nation and standing up by the mainstream press immediately. So, you've described this sort of action by the mainstream media as the fifth filter. Could you briefly touch, touch upon that again and why the mainstream media uses this sort of um, uh, action to quell grassroots uh, movements? The mainstream media are an ideological instrument no, they have uh, they have owners. They have commitments. They have uh, uh, advertising support, and so on. They they're very valuable. I mean, I read them all the time. I'm glad they're there, but we shouldn't have any illusions. They're not coming from Mars. They are based on existing institutions of of power uh, and domination within our societies, and that affects. Uh, the way what they choose to discuss at all, some things they don't discuss, and the ways in which they do it. It would be almost a miracle if that weren't true. And when they condemn actions like these, that should be taken as praise. Say we're doing the right thing. If these institutions condemn us, that's pretty good reason to think we're doing the right thing. It happens to be counter to their particular interests, but they don't represent the public interest. They represent certain special interests of power and domination and privilege. So if they don't like what we're doing, fine, let's continue. And it is the right thing to do, at least if you care about the survival of the species. And that's what's at stake. We should recognize that in the case of nuclear weapons, as well as environmental catastrophe, we're really talking about survival of the species. In the case of nuclear weapons, literal survival. And it, as again, I repeat, it's come very close in the past, and there's no reason to think that's not going to repeat. 